0: The other day, as I was logged into you know, Facebook, and I've kind of seen this over the uh, past month or so, but there's been this reoccurring theme that I've seen, and that's you know, people wishing uh, their spouse a happy anniversary, or wishing somebody a happy anniversary. I guess it's that time of the year, right? That people get married sort of this t- time of the year. I Actually, I went to a website, I don't know how accurate it is, but they gave me the top five months that people are born in, and, and the fifth highest was August. <laughs> Fourth was May, the third was June, second was September, and the number one uh, month that people were married in is the month of October, you know, and that really puts us pretty much in all of those late spring to early fall months, all except for July. I even did an experiment. I went to our uh, instant church directory that we can uh, access on our our phones, and I took a look at the list of anniversaries listed of, of people within the congregation here, and it came up to be, you know, pretty much the same answer. Now, there was one outlier in that our highest month of anniversaries is actually December. We have got five uh, couples married in December, and that kind of threw off the numbers a little bit. So thank you to, to you guys. But uh, uh, we, uh, again, we saw that pattern of, you know, of anniversaries happening in the later or in the summer months. You know, those are days that you don't forget, right? We've spent a lot of attention on birthdays, our, our kids' birthdays, our, our spouses' birthdays, or even our... our uh, wedding anniversary. Again, that's a, that's a date that we do not want to forget. But there's not much attention, uh, maybe as, as much that we give to, you know, some people refer to as our spiritual birthdays, you know, the, the day that you were born again. But even more obscure, and I've heard people refer to it before as this, is what about your spiritual wedding day? That, the, again, that day, uh, one commentator uh, refers to uh, baptism as the believer's wedding ceremony right when you come up from the waters of baptism you are now married to Christ the day that you became part of the bride of Christ Well, where do we get that idea you know there there is really no scripture uh, that specifically says that uh, we are the bride of Christ but we're going to look at a lot of scriptures here this morning that are going to point to uh, that emphasis here this morning that the church is married to Christ he they are the body excuse me the bride of Christ. But in order for us to understand that analogy, we really we need to understand a little bit about the, the, the Jewish tradition of marriage ceremonies that took back place back then. You know, our present day Western culture, you know, when we think of weddings, we think of ceremonies and white dresses and vows, you know, something old, something new, something borrowed and something blue. We think of, you know, it's bad luck for the groom to, to see his bride the morning of the wedding or carrying her over the threshold, right? Those are the things that we think of when it comes to marriage ceremonies. But let's take our minds back to, again, maybe the first century, uh, the days when Jesus lived, uh, when the Bible writers were writing uh, and noticed some things about the traditions that they had in Judaism. The first phase of a Jewish marriage was... A betrothal. You've heard of this word before, right? This, is, this involves the establishment of a marriage covenant between the two individuals. See, what, what will happen is the, the groom, or the scriptures really refer to him as the bridegroom, he'll, he'll start the initiative, right? He'll go to the, the father's house of the girl that he wants to marry, and he'll sit down with the father and negotiate with him a price to pay for uh, his bride, And so after they negotiate this uh, with the father and, of course, the father, you know, in Deuteronomy chapter 22, we notice that the father is responsible for the moral purity of his daughters. And so that's why the the prospective groom goes and talks to him about the price that he's going to uh, that's going to be required to uh, give her to him as his bride. And so once these both sides agree and they're satisfied with this uh, this price, in these conditions, then there's going to be a contract that's going to be written up, and the two parties are going to sign the contract. And again, a betrothal period. We often maybe think of it as you know our engagement time, right? If we uh, uh, we uh, propose to somebody, you know, we are engaged to them. And sometimes, you know, that engagement will take you know anywhere from three to six to a year, months to a year, or even longer. But the betrothal period was actually more legally binding than our engagement period. Right? If someone's going to break off an engagement, they might simply just give the ring back. But in this time, in this place, when you were betrothed to someone, you had signed a contract. And so you were legally bound to that. So if you were going to break off the engagement, the betrothal, you'd have to go through the, the steps, the processes necessary to do that. You know, when we first meet uh, Joseph and Mary in Scripture, they're here in the betrothal time, right? Mary has been betrothed to Joseph. And of course, that's when in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, we we understand that uh, by by the Holy Spirit, Mary was found to be with child. And when Joseph found this out, uh, not knowing that it was the Holy Spirit... But, but knowing that she was pregnant, we, we recall that the Bible tells us that Joseph was a righteous man. And so he wanted to put her away secretly. See, and again, in this culture, in Jewish, uh, uh, by the old law, you know, he had the authority to, if he wanted to, to have capital punishment taken out on her uh, for uh, doing that. But again, he was a righteous man. He planned to send her away secretly. But of course, he had the vision, the dream that told him by the angel that this was uh, this was uh, nothing uh, wrongdoing on her part. But this was the son of God uh, that was in uh, Mary's womb. And so, again, this betrothal period, now she is set apart. She is set apart exclusively for her bridegroom. And there's a couple of other interesting things uh, reading about this time period, you know, that maybe you see some symbolism in as in uh, to sort of symbolize the union, uh, the, the husband or excuse me, the bridegroom and, and the, the bride. You know, they'll drink from this one cup uh, together, symbolizing again, the, this, uh, this coming together, this union. And also during this time, uh, it's said that the bride will uh, immerse herself in a mitvah. Now, a mikvah is a sort of what we would refer to as a baptistry. Uh, It was a stone baptistry, and she would go down in it and come back out, immerse herself, and it would symbolize uh, being cleansed, being pure. But now the next step, the next step, after that contract has been uh, signed, uh, again, uh, after they have now become betrothed to one another, the next step is for the bridegroom to go back to his father's home, and he's going to get out his tools, and he's going to build an addition to the home of his father. He's going to build a room, a specific room, uh, living accommodations for he and his future uh, bride. And now this process could take up to a year, right? And uh, again, think uh, think of this as an engagement period. He's back at his father's house building this room. And the bride as well, during this time period, she's preparing uh, to be a wife as well. She, she's training. Uh, she's, um, she's also committing her fidelity, fidelity to him during this time. And note, we also want to note that there's, at this point, there's no cohabitation going on. Right? They are still living separately because they have not uh, officially became man and wife. But once that room is complete, uh, that he's building at his father's house, now it's time to go get his bride. And so what he will do, uh, and notice there's no RSV cards, RSVP cards, there's no save the date cards, there's no wedding invitations. It's when that room is done and he's ready to go get his bride, he'll leave at some point in the night, he'll take his groomsmen with him, and they'll head towards uh, the bride's home and to get uh, his bride. You know, again, she's not expecting, she's expecting him, but she doesn't know the exact date, she doesn't know the exact time when uh, he will arrive, the best man of the, of the groom, he plays a big role. He plays a much bigger role than maybe the best man would in today's society. But the best man, uh, he was responsible for many details. And one of those was when they got close to the bride's house, he would shout or yell something to the effect of, Behold, the bridegroom. Right? He's giving attention that the bridegroom is there and it's time to uh, begin the, the festivities. And so the groom receives his bride and now they all... Uh, think of the groomsmen uh, and the bridesmaids, the bride and groom, they all head back towards the father's house, and once they get there, they enter into that room, they consummate the marriage, and the best man, uh, he's sort of hanging around outside the door, because when he understands that uh, that, 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 uh, that it's taking place, and you probably understand what I'm talking about, uh, that uh, the festivities can begin because they are now man and wife. And these festivities could take up to seven days, a week long process. Well, I know that was a lot of information about, you know, how, uh, a Jewish marriage ceremony took place in the first century, but I'm hoping w- when you were listening to that, that maybe you saw some parallels there between that and the church's relationship to Christ. And so I want to talk about some of these this morning. Uh, number one, I want to talk about the selection process. You know, many of us are probably thankful that uh, we don't live in the time period of arranged marriages. You, you know, we see that a lot in the Old Testament. You can think of back in Genesis chapter 24 uh, when Abraham was old and advanced in years and Sarah had passed away. He wanted to find a wife for his son Isaac. And if you recall, he, he sends one of his servants back to his homeland, back to the family of relatives and to uh, find a wife for Isaac from there. He didn't want him to marry a woman of the land, a Canaanite woman. So he delegated this task to his faithful servant. And he, if you recall, you know, he arrives there. He prays uh, to God that, you know, that the person that I ask for water, uh, if she says, yes, I'll give you water and I'll give you water to feed your camels. You know, let that be the woman for Isaac. And of course, here comes Rebecca. Rebecca comes to the well, she, she's there for the water, and the servant asks that question, and she says, yes, I'll give you water, and I'll give you water for my camel. And the man immediately gives Rebecca a ring, a gold ring, and a couple of bracelets, and they go back to Rebecca's home and talk to Rebecca's father and family all about this. And again, the servant recalls uh, all the things that his master Abraham had commanded of him to do. And they ask Rebecca, Rebecca, will you accept this proposal? And she says, yes right and so then she goes back to the land uh, of Canaan to be uh with her her future husband Isaac and again you know that's uh, commonly what we see uh in in the old testament you know today it's a little, the selection process is is not as that right usually we'll, we'll meet someone we'll we'll date them a while we'll get engaged and then we'll get married of course but but we we'll think about how that relates to you and I as Christians, right? Christ selects us. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Right? You are a chosen race. You have been chosen. John 15, verse 16, Jesus said, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. And I love Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 says that God, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Before the worlds were created, God chose Christians. He chose us. And so we see that parallel between a a groom uh, choosing his bride and Christ choosing uh, his, his church. We also see a price paid. Again, uh, uh, Abraham's servants uh, in Genesis chapter 24, they, pay, they paid a price for Rebekah, uh, that ring, uh, those bracelets. He also gave some other things. If you continue reading on in that chapter, uh, that again, and uh, we see in ancient Jewish customs that that was, uh, that was the norm, right? You would pay for the price of the bride. You know, we sort of have that backwards today, don't we? Uh, Someone with two daughters, you know, uh, there's going to be a day where I might have to uh, fork up money for a couple of weddings, you know, Uh, but uh, Christ paid a price for you and me. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Again, Peter writes, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. There was a price paid for you and I. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, Paul writes, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Right? Your body is not your own. Right? Christ died for it. You have been bought with a price. Acts 20 verse 28, when Paul is talking to the Ephesian elders and he's warning them, saying, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among you, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God. And then notice that last part. He says, which he purchased with his own blood. Again, Christ purchased the church with his own blood. There was a price paid. Another thing is we can talk about that contract. Uh, again, when, when Angela and I got married, I signed a marriage license, a marriage certificate. And really, I don't recall any of the wording that was on it. I couldn't tell you what was on that contract. All I knew is that I had to sign that. Right? And again, they had to sign so, some type of a contract as well uh, in that custom, in that tradition. Well, Christ made a contract with us, with Christians. In Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 33, the prophet Jeremiah is prophesying about a day when there is going to be a new covenant. And notice what he says, because there's wedding language uh, in here. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in that day, I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after these days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart and I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Jeremiah is prophesying about that new covenant, the the New Testament, uh, that's gonna be purchased with that blood. God said, I was a husband to them, but they forsook me. And now I'm going to have I'm going to establish in those days a new covenant with them. And of course, again, uh, that's how that relates to us here in the church is, is, is that new covenant that Jesus offers us. There's also a decision made, right? A decision based on the selection and the price and the contract. You know, a decision has to be made. You know, again, they asked Rebecca back in Genesis chapter 24, if you will accept this offer. She could have said yes. She could have said no, but she said Yes. She knew nothing about Isaac. She had no idea what he looked like, and what he did for a living. She knew nothing of those things, but she accepted the offer. Well, again, you and I have to make a decision as to if we are going to accept Christ's proposal as well. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, Peter writes, And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Do you remember also in John chapter 20 when Jesus is talking to Doubting Thomas and he says, Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who did not see and yet believed. And again, as Christians, we have to make that decision uh, whether uh, or not we are going to accept Christ's proposal, even though we've never seen him physically in a sense. uh, We know him through the scriptures. We know him through the revelation of the creation of this world. But though we have not seen him, we have to make that decision. Another aspect is the betrothal. See, when a man gets down on one knee and he asks the lady to marry him, at that point, we would say that they're exclusive. Right? That it's that he loves her and she loves him and that there's no other dating anyone else from that point forward. Well, Christians are betrothed to Christ. Do you know that? Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Notice what Paul writes here. Uh, Again, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. Paul writes, I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your mind will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Paul wrote that those in Corinth, the church there in Corinth, were betrothed to one husband, right? This is language that he brought out of Hosea chapter 2. But Paul pictures himself giving the church to Christ on that last day as a pure virgin, as a father, again, who was responsible for, for them. He was concerned that he says there in verse three, he was concerned that they were being led astray uh, to another uh, individual. Friends, we are betrothed as the church of Christ. We are betrothed to the to the bride or to the groom, Jesus Christ. There's also that departure that we can think of. So remember when the groom, he leaves uh, the bride's home after negotiating contract and he goes home and he builds that room for his for his future bride. And he's gone a significant amount of time. Well, think of that in this terms, right? Christ was here living uh, on the earth, and he also returned to his father's house in heaven after he established that new covenant with us and rose from the dead. But did you also know that Christ built a room? That's in John chapter 14. You remember this promise that Jesus made in John chapter 14? Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many dwelling places, and if it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. And where I am, there you may be also. Does that imagery click of the of the groom going and building that home for his bride and also Jesus going home and building a room for you and I? Now, I know in some of the uh, other translations, maybe you're reading out of the King James or New King James. It talks about in my father's house are many mansions. But really, that word uh, that they translate mansion, uh, it's really better suited or rendered room or dwelling places. You know, Jesus went and he's building uh, a room for you and I. Again, there's some of that bridal imagery there. And then finally, notice this, the return. You know, at some point, unbeknownst to the bride... The bridegroom returns for her, you know, and he brings along that wedding party. Well, again, Christ is returning for his bride. Notice what Paul writes in First Thessalonians chapter 4, 16 and 18. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead and Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with those words. Jesus descending from above with a great shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. You know, you can almost uh, maybe see the imagery of the archangel as uh, the best man of Jesus, right? And uh, we don't know what the scriptures don't tell us what he's going to say, just that there's going to be a great shout, but maybe... Maybe, just maybe, it'll be behold the bridegroom. And then we will meet him in the air, as the scriptures say, and always be with him. There's a lot of imagery there between you know, the, the, the Jewish marriage customs and also with uh, the, the, the implication that we are the bride of Christ. Well, well, if the scriptures teach that we are the bride of Christ, what implications does that give for you and I here this morning I think it, it makes some of those things a little bit clearer to us. And I want to give you a couple of those. Number one is that we wear his name. Right? Again, it's our custom in today's society when you get married, right? the, 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 the woman might take the man's last name. Now, it doesn't always happen that way. And again, it's just a tradition. It's just a custom. But the majority of the time, the woman's going to take the last name of her husband. We wear the name Christian. When you and I come up from the waters of baptism and become a new creature, a new creation, we wear that name Christian. Back in Isaiah chapter 65, verse 15, uh, before the church was even established, before anyone was uh, called Christian, uh, notice what Isaiah prophesies. He says, you will leave your name uh, for a curse to my chosen ones and the Lord God will slay you, but my servants will be called by another name. Isaiah is prophesying of a day that when there's going to be this new name, another name that the followers of God are going to be referred to. And of course, Acts chapter 11, verse 26 is when that happens. It says, And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Do you know what that word Christian means? Obviously, we understand Christ, uh, the anointed one, the Messiah. Right? Uh, and, but the I-A-N at the end, it's a possession type word. And so really what Christian means is I belong to Christ. You know, if you uh, are a Kentuckian, it means you belong to Kentucky. Right? And we are Christians. We belong to Christ. And so uh, we, one of the implications of being the bride of Christ is that we wear his name. Another implication, if we are the bride of Christ, is that we love our spouse. Uh, Notice in Ephesians chapter 5, and we read some of these verses already, but Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 28, again it says, So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. What would you do this morning if someone... Insulted or maybe um, assaulted your spouse we 'd get pretty angry wouldn't we? We would probably what we'd say get fighting mad right? we would be upset about that. Do we feel the same way when someone insults or assaults the church, the bride of Christ? Do you neglect your spouse? I, I know that uh, that there's probably would be a lot of marital tension if you neglected your spouse maybe you decide that you're only going to come home uh, every other night or or only a few times a month but how does that work out Uh, that doesn't work out too well does it well hebrews chapter 10 verses 24 and 25 tells us uh, that that we need to uh, make sure that we have that relationship with the church as well hebrews chapter 10 verses 24 and 25 let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds Not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. James chapter 4, verse 4, you know, talks about how uh, we are not to be friends with the world. Right. Is your spouse your best friend? I would hope so. What about in relation to the church? Right? Because James also refers to them in that chapter, or excuse me, in that verse, 4 verse 4, he calls them adulteresses. Because they're, they're leaving the church and going to the world. And they're showing that friendship with the world. Right? And so that's another implication of being the bride of Christ. is We need to show that respect and that love for our spouse as Christ did for the church. We need to keep ourselves pure. You know, the, the white wedding dress the, that the bride wears... We, we understand where that comes from, right? That, that white, that color white symbolizes uh, purity and innocence. Well, if you're still in Ephesians chapter 5, and uh, back up a couple of verses it's to verse 25. And again, notice what Paul says. He says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, and that he might present to himself the church in all her glory having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. See, on that day when Christ is going to deliver the church uh, to God the Father, he wants to present her in a way that she has no spot or wrinkle. Uh, she wants that she's holy and blameless. Right? The, uh, Revelation chapter 19, verse 7 and 8, notice how this passage refers to the church. Uh, let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen bright and clean for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints we need as the body of christ as the bride of christ to keep ourselves pure from this world and then finally the last point i want to make and then the lesson will be yours is another implication of being the bride of Christ is that we are ready for his return. Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 13 is one of the most powerful uh, parables that Jesus gives in Scripture, the parable of the ten virgins. And of course, we have these ten bridesmaids who are waiting for the bridegroom to show up. And then we read in verse 6 of that chapter that that just happens, right? Just as we had mentioned before. But at midnight, there was a shout, Behold the bridegroom, come out and meet him. And if you recall in that parable, of those ten bridesmaids, uh, five of them were prudent and they were ready because they had oil for their lamp. But there were another five who didn't have enough oil for their lamp. And so they begged the other five, please give us some of your oil so that we can you know, light the way, so that we can see ourselves to the, to the groom. But those five prudent uh, bridesmaids said to the five foolish ones, Go and buy some for yourself. And of course, they go in and have to purchase some more oil for their lamps. But it's too late right? because the bridegroom came back. He brought the party back. He shut the door to the wedding feast. And he says to those who were unprepared, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. So they returned and the door was shut because they were not prepared. And as the bride of Christ this morning, we need to understand that we must be prepared for that day. Uh, When he returns for his bride, you know, Christ died on a cross to pay the penalties for our sins and his blood paid the price. And with it also purchased the church. And through this, he established that new covenant, that new promise. And every time the gospel message is declared to someone, Christ is proposing to them. He says, I want a relationship with you. Every one of us has to make that a uh, decision, either to accept it or reject it. You know, the, the the consequences of rejecting a marriage proposal is, you know, basically we're going to be single, right? But the consequences of rejecting Christ's proposal is far, far more tragic. Friends, accept His proposal today. If you have not accepted. His proposal today to become a Christian, to be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins, to have his blood cover you and to wash away those sins. This morning is the morning to do that. Our sins can be washed away. We can be part of his bride, the church here this morning. If we only believe in, uh, believe that he is the son of God, repent of our sins, confess him as Lord, and again, be baptized for the remission of our sins. Or this morning, as we are about to offer the invitation, uh, if you're needing the prayers of the congregation here, uh, maybe you've neglected the bride of Christ. And maybe you want to ask for forgiveness of that as well. Maybe you want to put more importance in your relationship with the Bride of Christ. Again, the church. This morning, there's no better time to make that decision. Please let us know as together we stand and sing.